So my grandfather, we called him Mose, but he had a, a terrible habit. He loved to eat. That wasn't the terrible habit. But at the end of every meal, he would just go on and on and on about how excellent the meal was, right? And so, you know, if you've just been to a fine cuisine establishment, you want to go on and on and on. But sometimes we would look at him and we would, you know, be like, hey, Mose, this is McDonald's. But you see, what we didn't understand at the time was my grandfather's palate was shaped during the Great Depression. And as a five- and six-year-old kid in rural West Tennessee, where the mosquitoes are the size of your Bible and the temperatures go over 100, he would stand in line waiting to receive two crackers and a can of Vienna sausages as his sustenance for the day. And so if that's your baseline, then yeah, pretty much every meal most of us have ever consumed is filled with joy and thanksgiving and appreciation. So you might wonder what on earth does that have to do with Ephesians chapter 2, but the answer is everything. Because if we understand that the Bible's baseline for me and for you is that we are spiritually dead and deserve nothing but anger from God. If we start there, then every ounce of grace is amazing. And every ounce of grace is joyful. And every ounce of grace changes everything. So, here at Redeemer, we are working our way um, through six sermons, kind of bringing home the, just what we're calling gospel foundations, the, the very foundations of Christianity, the very foundations of the gospel. And we've talked about God's word God's saving son, and today we're going to talk about God's saving grace. And what I want you to see is that Christianity rests upon God's gracious action to save and sustain sinful people. Christianity rests upon God's gracious action to save and to sustain sinful people. If you're here today and you claim the name of Jesus, those of us who claim to be the children of God, our profession of faith rests wholly upon God's grace and His action to save and sustain woefully sinful people like us. And if you're here today kind of checking Redeemer out, checking Christianity out, as gently and lovingly and yet truthfully and pointedly as I can say, the Scripture would want you to see how dead, sinful, rebellious, and undeserving you are. And yet, how kind and gracious and merciful God is when He sent His Son Jesus into the world to save and sustain sinners. 
Grace is one of those words that's lost its meaning because we use it too much and we throw it around like an empty cliche. But grace is God's action of pouring out undeserved favor and undeserved blessing upon those who didn't deserve it. And he did so at great cost to himself. We'll come back to that. But grace is not God overlooking who we are and saying, "Eh, it's not that big of a deal. Grace is God at great expense to himself changing who we are by sending his son to save and redeem and restore and make new. That might sound a little too high and lofty, so let me just put it in the, in the street-level language if I can. The Bible says that we're evil people. And the Bible says that God paid the price himself to save, forgive, and sustain evil people so that evil people can be God's people. So what do we believe about humanity here at Redeemer? We believe that humanity is terrible. We believe that it's broken, that it's sinful, that it's fallen, that everything you see on the news is true because, it, it, because the Bible is true. People apart from God's grace are evil. And we believe that the God who sent His Son into the world whose name was Jesus, to save sinners, changes reality so that evil people can be different. So I believe that people are evil, and I believe there's hope for evil people because God's Son, Jesus, came, lived, died, rose again, and reigns today. Now, perhaps you don't want to take me at my word, and you would like me to show you that from the Scripture. By the way, that's good sermon listening. Really good sermon listening. So let me see if I can show you from the scripture that that these two things are true. So my note-taking friends, point one, we are dead in sin. What verses one through three tell us is that we are sinful sinners, every single one of us. What that means is that at the core of who we are and by nature, we are rebels against God And our actions depict over and over and over again that we are rebels against God. So the word sin, this is how we could define that. Sin would be any failure to perform the law of God in act, attitude, or nature. Sin would be any failure to conform to the law of God in act, attitude, or nature. And what this passage tells us in the first three verses is that every single one of us fails to conform to the law of God in act, attitude, and nature. I'm going to put application before we look at the text, but but let's just cut to the chase. Humanity is basically fill in the blank. Good, no, 
untrue. Humanity, we've all made a few mistakes, but at the core, we're, we're good people. No, untrue. Humanity at the core is dead, broken, and rebellious. I'm going to read verses 1 through 3 again and just listen for these themes of, of sin and death and rebellion. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, is there any way to spin that into humanity's basically good. No. Is there any way to spin that into, I'm okay, you're okay, let's just be positive and not talk about sin? No. Is there any way to spin that into, we just need to be kind and not worry about theology and find a way to get along, because if we can get along, then the world will be a better place? No. What this says is the world's broken because sin reigns and Jesus is the only answer. Now let's look at what it says. First, it tells us that sin is present in the world and it's present in me and in you. Right? If I said, write down the five biggest sins of your spouse, who could do it? Without even blinking, you just did it. Boom, 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 boom. I got a better one. Write down your mother-in-law's five biggest transgressions. Go! Now, I got some mother-in-law sitting on rows over here, so I got to be careful. Um, write down your boss's five biggest sins. Go. Write down your roommate's five biggest sins. Go. Write down the president's five biggest sins. Go. Man, we got it. Now, write down your two biggest sins. See, we all have one on the surface to act like we have um, good self-awareness. So two, I just stumped you because we're terrible at seeing our own failings. Actually, it's been hammered into our brains since we were born that we're good and we're awesome and the world should be blessed to have people like me and my awesome generation serving it. And yet Paul says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins and once you walked following the course of the power. Like, we are sinners. Paul says that we're dead in our trespasses and sins. By the way, Paul wrote the book of Ephesians. That's why I keep referring to that. Paul is making it very clear that sin is present in everyone. So in some way, we can say the biggest problem in the world is the sinfulness of humanity. In some way, we can say the biggest problem at Redeemer Church is the sinfulness of the people at Redeemer Church. 
In some ways, we can say the biggest problem in the Mosley family is the sinfulness of the Mosleys. And your family gets that one too, by the way. In some way, we can say that the biggest problem in my life is my sin. And that hurts, doesn't it? That hurts. So Paul says sin is present. You were dead, all of you. Paul says, second, that sin has a controlling part and controlling power in our lives. He says that sin causes us to follow the prince of the power of the air. Sin causes us to carry out the passions of the flesh and the desires of the body and of the mind. So not only are we sinful people who rebel against a holy God, but we enjoy it, he says. We enjoy it. One of the biggest hallmarks of people who are separated from God is they love their sin. And one of the things that God used to draw me to himself was a distaste for the sin that I once loved so much. Sin's present, sin's powerful, and the result of sin is that we are dead and we are enemies of God. You were dead and by nature, children of wrath. Do you know what by nature, children of wrath means? It means that God's wrath is against all people who rebel against him. All y'all. And do you know what dead means? It means dead. There was no spiritual life in any of us. So this is the picture of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, is that every human being who has been born into this world is a sinful sinner who has sin dwelling within them, who has exerted sin against God and against others in an act of rebellion, and sin controls every single human in such a way that we enjoy it, and the result is that we are spiritually dead and we are an offense to God. I know that some of you are probably sitting there going, wait, 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 dude. Are you telling me that in 2017, you believe this kind of stuff? Yeah, yeah, we, we, we do. And I'll tell you why. Because there's no other alternate truth story that explains the broken world that we live in more favorably and more accurately than the story of the Bible. The story of the Bible is that God created everything and he created it good and Adam and Eve, our first parents, rebelled against him and since that moment, 
Sin and death have been the defining markers of humanity apart from God's grace. And there is no other story out there that makes sense of the world that we live in any more than this story. There's there's no story that makes sense of the strife in your life any more than this story. And so I'm just here to tell you that the longer I or you or we kick against this narrative that we are dead rebels who deserve God's wrath, the more we soft-pedal this story, the more we are, are saying we don't need the best answer, the best medicine, and the best remedy the world has ever known. And that is God's saving son, Jesus, and the grace that he extends. Are we popping here? We're okay? And the grace that he extends to all people, to those who believe in him, the grace that comes to his people. So get this. The baseline of the Christian story is that we are dead in our sin. So here's what this means. That apart from God's grace, we're dead And we're separated from God. What this means is that as children of God, upon whom God's grace rests, our biggest need is for our lives to be distanced from the sin and the rebellion that characterizes who we are. One of the worst things I could allow myself, my family, or you to do is to convince yourself that you're better than you really are. Because the minute we convince ourselves that we're not the wickedest of sinners, the the minute we convince ourselves that we're not as fully dependent upon God's grace as the worst person in all of humanity, is the minute that we start to forget how much we need Jesus. So that's the baseline. And if the baseline is that we are dead in sin, then the answer is joy. The answer is freedom. The answer is overwhelming. The answer drives us to worship. And the answer to our sin is verse 4 But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. If you write in your Bible right there, by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places so that in the ages to come he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now, look at that. Who is the actor in those verses? God. God is. In those verses, 
All that we've contributed is our death and our rebellion and our sin. Grace is God's initiative to pour out undeserved favor and undeserved blessing upon those who don't deserve it through His Son, Jesus. Grace is a gift from God. And this is where I think the wrong analogy really, really hurts us. So theologian Michael Horton, you can look him up online. He's a little bit controversial, really funny, and says some great things all at the same time. But he said, he said this. I was listening to a podcast this week. He said, Christians like to think of grace like a good cup of coffee. You know, I got a lot to do today. I'm really tired. I'm a bit weary. I don't want to get out of bed. But a cup of coffee, it'll just give me a little pick-me-up and bring a little more spark to my day and a little more joy to my morning. Now look, friends, I love a good cup of coffee as much as the next guy, and you don't want to meet me before my cup of coffee. But that is a wretched way to think of God's grace. Because it presumes that we can do the work. It presumes that we can get ourselves through the day. It presumes that we have what we need. It presumes that we're good enough and strong enough and intuitive enough and godly enough to be Christ-like. Grace is not like caffeine that just enhances reality. Grace is far more than that. Another terrible illustration for grace is that of like jumper cables. You know, your battery's dead because it's cold outside, and if you can just jump it off, then your alternator will kick in and your car will charge the battery, and you know, really, the car was good enough to drive all along. The battery just needed a little jump start. And so a lot of people think of God's grace like jumper cables, like I just need something to get me going, but then I'll be me and God will be happy. Trust me, you being you is the problem. And me being me is the problem. The better way to think of God's grace is like an umbilical cord to a baby in its mother's womb. The umbilical cord is the source of oxygen, of sustenance, of food. If the umbilical cord gets tied in a knot and that knot gets pulled tight, the baby will die. Without the umbilical cord, the baby cannot live for any time at all. Now, all analogies break down, so my nursing friends, like, don't be like, yeah, but then the baby's born, and the umbilical cord's cut. Like, it's an analogy, okay? That's all true, but... The picture of God's grace in these verses is that God was rich in mercy when he didn't have to be. He deferred his wrath for a season. God was motivated by his love toward his people. He had a greater longing for his creation than to eradicate them from the face of the earth because of their sin. God did what we didn't deserve. He gave us a gift that we could not earn 
He reached into our deadness and to our rebellion and he sent his only son into the world to make us spiritually alive, to make us spiritually forgiven, to make us spiritually restored and to make us spiritually renewed. That's what God did. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead and our trespasses made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why? So that in the coming ages God might show the riches of his grace and his kindness toward us. Do you, now, now look at verse 7. God's purpose for saving us was to display how great his saving grace is, never to display how awesome we are. And the giver gets to determine the purpose of the gift. You know, like your grandma gave you that ugly sweater and expected you to wear it the first day of school, and your parents made you wear it anyway? Why? Because they knew grandma was going to ask mommy to post a picture on Facebook of you in the sweater. And the giver gets to determine the purpose of the gift. And the Christian message is that God saved a dead, wretched lump for the purpose of displaying His greater grace that even He can make that which was dead and rebellious alive and worshipful. Grace is the gift of God extended to us through Jesus Christ. So the scripture tells us that grace convicts us of sin. Grace makes Jesus look attractive to us. Grace leads to and produces faith. Don't worry, we'll come to that next week. Grace grants new life. And grace empowers daily Christian living. So do you know that moment that you're fighting with somebody and you want to wring their neck and you want to point out 400 reasons why they're wrong and you're right and you're, you're, you're superior in the argument? Stop nudging your spouse. Stop. Okay. But you know that moment? An understanding of sin and grace allows us to say, no, I contribute to this and what I need more than a mea culpa from my spouse is for God to graciously reach down and soften my heart and show me my sin and show me how he's changing me and show me how he's working to bear fruit in my life and show me how he's making all things new and, and change me. And then once, once I pray for that, then I can pray that for the person I'm arguing with and then I can pray that for everyone else. What the world needs is a greater experience of the saving grace of God. I really wish I wasn't running out of time, but I am. So the gospel foundation is that every human is dead in sin and an enemy of God. And the gospel answer is that God mercifully and graciously provided new life to his children. And so if you're here today 
maybe you're asking this question. How do I know if God's grace is upon me? Do you feel the slightest brokenness, distaste, hatred over your own sin? Because if you do, I believe that the Spirit of God is dispensing the grace of God and drawing you to Himself. And so if you feel the least bit of brokenness or distaste over your sin in your life, I would encourage you to pray, Father in heaven, would you show me how great your saving son is so that I can experience more of your grace. Second, grace makes Jesus look attractive. I don't mean attractive in the sense of like, I want to date him. I mean like, wait, you're saying that God's son died on the cross to pay the penalty for my sin? I want to know more about that. Because often when people hear that, they're like, I'm not interested. But when the grace of God is at work in someone and they hear the gospel, it sounds appealing. So if you have the least interest in knowing more about Christ and his salvation, then God's grace is being poured out upon you. And I would encourage you to pray, God, show me who Jesus is. Third, grace leads to and produces faith. Faith is believing that Christ and Christ alone has saved us from our sins. So if today you can say in good conscience, the only hope for me is that Christ redeemed me and Christ has saved me and I trust Jesus as my Lord and my Savior, then God's grace has brought you to that point Grace produces faith. And anywhere you see faith, you know that grace has brought you there. So can you look in your life and can you see a spark of faith? Because if you have, God's grace has brought you there. Grace grants new life. Can you see any change, any transformation any new love, any new desire, any new taste for that which is joyful and good? Can you read and understand the scripture? Can you stand to be around Christians for the first time in your life? Do you enjoy singing worship to the Lord? Do you enjoy hearing God's word? All of those things are gifts of God's grace. They're gifts of new life and they're signs to us that God has indeed poured his grace out upon me. So the scripture doesn't say, go around asking, is God's grace upon me? The scripture says, go around hating your sin, trusting Christ for your salvation, 
and seeking to bear fruit to the glory of God because all of those things are fueled by grace. And where we see that in our lives, God's grace has brought us there. So in our sermon series, we're trying to wrestle with this statement that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus Christ alone as revealed in the scriptures alone for the glory of God alone. Salvation, redemption, new life, acceptance before God is a gift of God's grace It is not earned. There is nothing that we do to merit God's favor. God purchases our acceptance through the blood of Jesus. And so I want you this morning to say this. I'm a sinful sinner. I need God's grace. Maybe for the first time, maybe to sustain me for my 90th and 91st years, but I need God's grace to continue to breathe life into me so that I can bear fruit for his glory. And because of God's grace, I will hate my sin, I'll believe the gospel, and I'll seek to bear fruit for the glory of God. This continuum of sin and grace will carry with us throughout our lives. Let's be people who know how needy we are and who know how great a freeing, joyful gift God's saving grace is. So today, I would invite you to respond to the Lord You might want to sit and pray. Team, you guys can go ahead and come up. You might want to sit and pray. You might want to talk to somebody. I'd be glad to talk to you um, after the service. You might have some questions. But more than anything, I want us to feel the weight of how much we need God's grace and feel the freedom of how good God's grace is to us. And believe that we need it just like a baby needs the nutrients of an umbilical cord. And let's orient our lives around depending upon God for his great grace.